This is The Janet Lewis Show. Welcome to episode 32. Today, we're going to be talking to Paola Girardi, the founder of Sugar Moon and Beauty United. Sugar Moon has been in business for over 20 years and is recognized as an industry leader in the hair removal industry. What sets Sugar Moon apart is their commitment to professionalism, personal customer service, and the use of ethically sourced all natural ingredients. Paula is a true leader who demonstrates a passion for her craft and the well being of her employees. She ensures her staff uh, receive comprehensive training, first of all, but secondly, that they're also paid a fair living wage which is uncommon in this industry, which is known for exploiting workers. And Paula's resilient spirit has helped her overcome many challenges, including being shut down for 212 days during the pandemic, followed by operating at a reduced capacity for another 407 days. Despite these obstacles, Paolo rose to the challenge and navigated the turbulent times successfully. In response to the shutdown, Paola also founded Beauty United to challenge the Ontario government's decision to close, to close beauty-related businesses due to a lack of governing body. She led the change to ensure the personal care industry was recognized and treated fairly. Paola became a problem solver. She saw an issue and became the driver of change. Today, we're going to explore Paola's life journey, how she got to where she is, and we'll talk about who and what has influenced her, the challenges she's encountered, there's been many along the way, and what gives her the energy to move forward. So Paola, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Janet. We've been talking about this for a long time. I know. I've wanted to get you on here for a long time. And it's funny, I, I did actually have to research this. So um, Paula and I originally met in 2016, and it was through a group of like, we had other common friends who are also business owners. So the four of us actually got together and decided to have dinner one night. I think it was to celebrate our birthdays. It's true. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't just all, it might have been. Yeah. Because we're, we're January's, I think. Yeah. yeah. And there <laughs> were like Aquarians. four of us that all live in the East End in Toronto. And we're like, why don't we all know each other? <laughs> and so then since then, I um, like I met you met that night. And then I have become a Sugar Moon Salon regular because I love the customer service that I get there. Everyone is so professional and, like I said, well trained. Um, but the one thing is, um, I want to mention about Paula is like she's a remarkable leader and an entrepreneur who she leads with empathy and always goes above and beyond to help others. And she's actually like a true inspiration to other female business owners and business leaders. And the one thing that I love about Paula is she has this like incredible ability to shift and adapt. And it doesn't matter what challenge <laughs> comes her way and Let's face it, there's been a lot of them. And despite the hardships, you know, Sugar Moon is has not only survived, but you're bringing it back, building it and thriving, right? And I think that's hard after what we have just been through. And you have so much dedication and unwavering commitment, not only to your business, but also to your team members. You feel a sense of responsibility to them and making sure that they can still earn 
a living and survive as well. And I think part of Paola's success is actually rooted in her personal integrity. And she treats everyone with respect and kindness. Like you're probably one of the most kind people that I've ever met. And you have earned a loyal following of customers because of these personal characteristics and traits that you have. You really do demonstrate care to people. And I think people can see that. And, you know, I love that you have remained determined and that you're still passionate and you're committed to long-term success. And like we mentioned at the beginning, like I've always wanted Paolo to share her story just because I think it's so remarkable and it is a great story of resilience. So today I'm excited to hear more about Paolo's journey because I don't know everything. I know some things, but I don't know everything. Maybe we'll figure out what I don't know today. And so to get started, Paolo, maybe we can talk a little bit about like your history where you grew up, where you're from, what you were like as a young girl, what you're passionate about. And then we'll get into your career. And I'm sure, like our conversations always go, we'll get into talking about business, challenges, successes, etc. We only have an hour, though. And I think that my biggest task is going to be keeping us on time. <laughs> well, again, you know, thanks for, for having me, Janet. I, I'm happy to share my story with you. Um, also happy to be reopened and to be able to celebrate um, sort of what I've overcome. So yeah, thanks for having me. Um, do you want to know how I where I grew up? You're here with me in my my home my hometown. So I grew up in Thorold, which is in the Niagara region, and um, I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. So the Girardi family um, had owned a couple of businesses. Um, so we had the Girardi High Grade and also Drotty Machine Shop, which is celebrating, I believe they're on 60 years now. So I was very fortunate to have grown up in a long line of entrepreneurs. Um, and yeah, I, I have two siblings, one older and one younger, and we were all very athletic doing different things. I was mostly soccer, volleyball, and um, my two sisters were more graceful than I, I was. So they <laughs> pursued like dancing and skating um, but yeah, I was, it's, it's funny. I ended up in the beauty industry because I was definitely what they would call a tomboy playing lots and lots of sports. And at that time, you know, playing on boys teams, uh, for soccer, because there wasn't a lot of, uh, opportunity, um, uh, in, in Thorold for, for just, um, competitive soccer for women, but soccer's come a long way. So a lot of that's changed now. Yeah. Yeah. So you grew up in a family of three girls. I did. You're a self-proclaimed tomboy. Mm -hmm. um, were any of your sisters more um, leaning towards, you know, girly type things, like when it came to hair, makeup, that type of thing? Um, I mean, I think all of us, I, my mom is awesome and she's, she's such a beautiful woman. Um, I think she really helped us at a young age, really take good care of our skin our hair. Um, for myself personally, I had a hair growth problem. So I, I had like lots of facial hair um, at the age of 10. And my mom was amazing in making sure that, um, you know, she led those conversations with us in a healthy way um, to always make sure that we felt comfortable. But um, I think all of us were a little bit, you know, we're all very sporty, uh, but we, we definitely um, had a mom who 
um, really loved skincare. And if you saw her today, um, you know, at 78, she just looks amazing. So I have a great role model there in, in image. So, and like look good, feel good. Right. But in this like healthy way. And so is that like, how did you end up in the beauty industry? Was it because of the challenges, like your own personal challenges with your skin that you had, what your mom taught you, or was there something else that kind of piqued your curiosity? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I didn't, I actually think I was going to end up in the beauty industry. That was not what I was pursuing. Um, definitely sciences, um, is my thing, but, um, I think when I moved into Toronto um, for school, um, I was looking for a place to get sugared um, because sugaring for me um, was like just having sensitive skin. Um, you know, waxing was much more harsh, especially on the face where I, I struggled the most. Um, so what I did was I was driving back into the Niagara area, which had a lot of sugaring salons. So commuting almost every other week. Um, and I decided at the age of 28, after being in the film industry, funny enough, for a long time to go back to school to become an esthetician. So I kind of reinvented myself in my late 20s, which is, you know, I think kids don't really know what to do anymore, Janet. They come out of school so early and they're supposed to know what they're doing at like 17 and 18. Um, no one really knows what they want to do. Like, I, I hope that somehow my story of reinvention <laughs> at any age will help, you know? Yeah. And I would also argue, like, I think nowadays kids are even expected even earlier to know, like when you're in grade nine, you have to choose like which track you're going to go on. And so mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of pressure there for kids to make some of these decisions earlier. And it's difficult because if you aren't actually in the workforce and getting experience and I'll tell you, like some of the crappiest jobs that I ever had probably taught me the most. right? <laughs> and mostly they taught me, I do not want to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> and so when you were growing up, I know you were playing sports, but were you also like working from a young age? Did you get that type of experience as well? Well, my first real job was at Orange Julius. Like I wore the brown visor hat. I rocked that thing. Um <laughs> But, you know, it's funny because like places like that, like Orange Julius or Starbucks, Tim Hortons, they have systems. So what I what for me, like going in at 14, everything was very systematic and it was easy to be trained. Like I knew, you know, funny enough, we're making sugar water. <laughs> um, That's where but, the root of it began. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, we we, it was easy to, to process for, for someone that, that was young. We knew exactly what to do, how to do it, how to close the till. And um, I think that those are great first jobs, to be honest with you. You know, working on the farm and I babysat and I did anything to, to make money because, you know, my, my parents were, they were, you know, they're very generous people. Um, but at the same time, if I wanted things, I had to earn it. And so those were valuable lessons at a young age. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And I agree with you about um, the training that you get at some of these larger corporations, because they put a lot of money and time into the training. And I think like the first time I ever got trained like that, I worked at a Casey's when it was opening. So it was also my first experience as a server, not my first job, <laughs> but my first experience as a server. And the training they gave you was like 
phenomenal. But I'll tell you, that job totally stressed me out because like <laughs> my mom would find me in the middle of the night in the living room being like, I'll get that for you. <laughs> But it was a great experience. I st I still love serving. You know, I go back and do it today. I think it was so much fun. But it it can be like a high stress environment. So at a young age, you learn kind of how to deal in that type of stress. Do you think um, in your earlier jobs before you launched Sugar Moon, were there any jobs that were more stressful for you, where you kind of learned how to deal with that type of stress? Hmm. Well, I did work in the film industry for a really long time. And so I think, I mean, the one thing that's amazing about the the film industry is that you work with the most incredible people um, who are all, you know, uniquely creative, um, you know, invested in the story, invested in, in how the story is told and how it looks. Um, so I had the opportunity of working in various areas of the film industry um, but that is a uniquely high stress environment um, in so many ways. So in particular, we worked on a TV series where it was a co-production um, with, I think it was France, Germany and Canada. And the way the production was sold, each country was told that it was going to look a certain way. And I was working with, um, I was working as an executive assistant actually at that time with one of the showrunners and I think I watched how he was able to um, manage everyone's expectations um, because I think in life managing expectations is one of the most important things. But I think some of my biggest lessons in resilience came from watching um, his name is Peter and he, he was a great mentor and he's still a great friend um, was watching how he balanced managing expectations um, of all of these different countries and their showrunners and what they thought the show was going to uniquely look like. And, um, you know, the in amount of hours we worked, um, the bottles of wine we drank <laughs> <laughs> to cope. Um, and it was actually, you know, at that time that I knew that if I wanted to have a family, at least in my opinion at that time, because certainly being an entrepreneur and wanting to have a family also has a lot of challenges. But I thought that there was no way that I was going to be able to have sort of that kind of childhood that I was very fortunate to have um, by staying in this environment where, you know, I think it's like 18 hour days sometimes. Um, so, yeah, I worked with a, a somebody named Peter um, who was an executive showrunner. And what he had to do was try to manage expectations of what and how this show was going to look based on how it was sold in Germany and France and in Canada. And I think from him um, is where I, I 100% learned, you know, gracefully how to manage expectations, stress, chaos, um, deadlines, and um, while having fun. I think that's the one thing um, for sure with Peter that was as a great mentor and friend that that he loved to have fun and he took care of his people. Um, you know, anybody who worked for him, he always made sure if they were, you know, he wanted to make sure that they were okay. So he created this like loving environment. And I think for sure the stress of the film industry for me was not something I thought I could manage as wanting, you know, wanting to take on, uh, you know, wanting to have children and to have a family. And so, um, you know, at that time, I decided to go back to school and to become an esthetician. Uh, funny enough, after we bought a house um, 
And yeah, it was, things were definitely not easy. I wish I had more information. I wish I would have talked to somebody sooner about what it was going to be like to open a business. Um, but yeah, most of, I, I think that was a very high pressure environment for me. And, and one of the reasons why I made an exit. And so you decided to exit the film industry in part because you want to have a family. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time when you exited the film industry, like, did you know that you were going to get into sugaring? Like, how did that start? What yeah, I mean, I love to be sugared. And so traveling back home and starting, like I was being sugared from a very young age and there was no, there was nothing available in Toronto for that. And so I just knew like in my heart that this would be something that I could do, um, that I, like, I definitely have the, um, I love to take care of people. So it definitely works for my personality. Um, and it was something I really wanted to learn. And so that's why I went back to school. Um, because I just knew I'd have my little sugar shop and funny enough, sugar moon started as a partnership. And on that same television series, I started sugar moon, um, with one of the makeup artists, uh, from that show. And, and we both had to actually go back to school, but Uniquely, we both knew and understood that we had the work ethic to open a business, um, but we just didn't realize at that time when we had started how little money, especially coming from a, a financially rewarding career, how little money we would make, um, <laughs> um, one, by going back to school, and two, what it took to build a business. So Yeah, so what did you go back to school for? What did you take? I, I, I went back to school for aesthetics. And then um, I didn't know that you had started the business with another person. Yeah. That must have been like very early on. Yeah. Was the business called Sugar Moon or was it called something else? No, actually, it was called Lune de Miel, actually, which meant honeymoon. But um, my my former business partner, uh, Muriel, was from France. And so we both loved the name. Um, but um, I had, from the film industry, I had a... Um, somebody who worked in PR, uh, her name is Ingrid. And she's like, Oh, let's go for a beer. She wanted to talk to me about, you know, sugar moon. And so we were sitting there. She's like, Paula, no one's ever going to remember Lunda Miel. What is Lunda Miel? It doesn't even mean sugar. Like just, if you want, if you really want someone to like, you know, remember you, you have to just call it what it is. Just call it sugar moon. So, um, Muriel and I both agreed to, to call sugar moon, sugar moon and her, a uh, husband actually did the first original logo, which was beautiful. It's this like stunning woman inside of a big yellow moon. And, and that's how we got started. Um, yeah, we were, we were great partners. We just weren't making a, a lot of money. And, and so, so one thing I love is I love that you talk to an expert and they give you that feedback so early on, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think I made the mistake when I started Orange Fish in like 2006 online the whole idea was like to have a fun, funky name, right? But it doesn't tell people what you're doing. And I think even more now in 2023, you need to be so clear about what you're doing. Like if you're selling socks, just call yourself the sock store or something cute and fun that has the word sock in it. Like it's so important. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny because um, even Sugar Moon is not necessarily that obvious um because it could be you know people get us confused with sugar mountain thinking that we're a candy store um (laughs) so you know we've now we're sugar moon the sweet alternative to waxing we we've we've trademarked those you know those taglines to really help the brand but 
Man, when you open a business, there is just so much that you need to think about at the startup. And I think, you know, the government still needs to do more in terms of helping um, small business in Canada. It's not easy in Canada versus I think in the U.S., small businesses are much more celebrated than they are here. But I think we've come a long way from where I was 20 years ago. Had we had what we had in place now, I would have made like hundreds of less mistakes and it would have been... (laughs) it would have been, you know, financially easier for me, for sure. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because I think sometimes there's policies or laws that are put in place where they actually think that they're helping. And in hindsight, it ends up hurting. Mm -hmm. And so I'll give you a good example, because I remember, um, like anyone knows, if you run a business, your mailing list is key. It's so important. Even in 2023, mailing list is still number one. And do you remember when they put in that can spam law? Yeah. That was the worst for small business. The worst. And and it didn't even solve the problem in the sense that people were worried about getting spammed. And so, yeah, it stopped Canadian businesses from spamming anyone. But we still all get spammed from like, China and other countries, right? Very true. Yeah. So I think that's a good example of something that really probably didn't work the way that that it was planned to work. Right? And and also like the tax levels and, mm-hmm. um, you know, access to financing. Um, and, you know, f- for, for myself, especially coming through what we've just been through, um, access to financing is even more challenging now, um, you know, with interest rates going up and inflation, inflationary times, it's even more challenging. I just, I don't, I, I think, I, I just wish that they would invite small business owners to these kinds of, to, to forums because you cannot have political people who have never owned a business making business policy. It really pisses me off. <laughs> um, and particularly through the pandemic when they actually really needed um, small business folks to be at the table talking to them about the needs and and the climate of small small, small business. Um, it's really it's frustrating. But you know there are people like you know CFIB and Dan Kelly who does does a great job at advocating for small business. I still feel like they need to bring more people at the round table to to help with with policy. And I think you would see more people wanting to start up businesses um, because it's what keeps the economy going. And I do think that there is also a lack of, I don't think people actually understand how much small business um, does keep the economy going. Like I think about my little engine, you know, I have 25 staff, right? So there's 25 people who are contributing to the economy. um, And that's, that's all being done by the, by the business. And, and it's scary, right? It's, it's totally scary. And so when we were shut down, um, that kind of responsibility for me was like enormous, like the, the heavy there was just, it was so big, you know? Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, not only are you thinking about you and your own family and your business's survival, but you also have 25 other people that you care about and worry about and want to make sure that they're surviving too. Mm-hmm. Um, so with all the things that you've seen in small business lately, What is one piece of business advice that you give to someone who's just starting out? Yeah, um, 
I think for sure having your financing in place, like making sure that you have not just, you know, $10,000, but like you need to have, you have to have money for a rainy day um, and having a plan, um, a real plan, like not, you know, oh, I have this great idea and I think it's going to work, right? Um, doing the work, hiring a, a an accountant off the bat to really look at your plan to make sure the viability of, you know, if you, what it's going to take to launch um, and making sure that all of your connectivity, um, like how, how the business is going to flow and maybe working with consultant, you know, a consultant on, you know, strategy of how to really get this to launch. Like, I just think the planning piece is so important. I still need help on executing plans um, and I'm 20 years in. So there's always this fear that it's not going to work. You know what I mean? So I think having your best plan is the best advice I would give. For sure. And I, and I think, you know, I think you raised a good point, like you're 20 years in, but you still look to work with people to help you. And, you know, that's also part of like owning and operating your own business is continually learning and growing. And, you know, we see so many things right now, especially that are happening in the tech space with AI and what's going to happen with businesses. And I think for business owners, it's important. No, you don't have to spend all of your time on it, but you need to spend some time on it to see if it will work for your business, if it makes sense to implement, if it doesn't make sense. And figuring out, like, is that part of your core? So if you're implementing some AI tools, is that part of the core business offering that you're offering to your people? And and will your customers really want that? Mm-hmm. So, okay, let's go to, um, you start Sugar Moon. Mm-hmm. And you're, how did it start out? Like, you're just like, you're both sugaring people. Well, we both, yes, yeah, so we both went to school for aesthetics. Um, and then we started in her house um, in one room, just bringing people over to, to her place. It was crazy. And then we found this little location on the Danforth, which was above a grocery store. And it was... Um, it was just, yeah, it was a little apartment that had two treatment rooms. So there we were, you know, two estheticians, two treatment rooms and a big old idea, which quickly took off. And and I mean, boots on the ground, like we were dropping um, flyers off in people's mailbox, like grassroots marketing and leaning on both of our cli- our friends and family from the film industry. Um, so we we kind of grew quickly. Um, but little did we know, you know, she had had, uh, both her children who were very, very young. And then I got pregnant with, um, uh, with my, my son and we just had no idea what that was going to, to do to us because at that time, and even now maternity leave for entrepreneurs sucks, but at that time there was no maternity leave option, um, because they basically, you cannot collect EI, um, because you don't necessarily have to pay into it, but all of that programming is so backward. And I would love to talk to somebody about that. But, um, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I think for us, those early couple years, just word of mouth and the growth, um, we really knew we had something special in, in the first six months of, of Sugar Moon. And so at what point in time, there's two questions I want to ask you really, but um, like at what point in time did you decide to grow and expand where it was more than just the two of you working? Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll leave that one with you and I'll ask the other one after. 
Well, I got pregnant. <laughs> so we had to have an employee like right away. Um, and, uh, and that was difficult because sugaring is not super popular or at that time, 20 years ago, wasn't very popular in, in Toronto. So actually finding anyone who had that skill was really challenging. So we knew that we would have to do some training. Um, but we were prior to me getting pregnant, we had decided to expand onto a main floor location. And so we were in the middle of these renovations and we knew we had to have the employee in order to be able to sustain the growth. Um, but we, I, I think for us at that time to make that decision, we both really need, we both realized we needed to really invest more to be able to take it to another level because we couldn't stay just where we were. Um, and I sometimes wonder, you know, would we have just been, how would we have been if it would have just been just the two of us in this, in this, you know, these two treatment rooms, would we have been happier than taking this to this expansion and all of this extra stress, you know, managing our young children and our families. And, um, and at that time, actually, she decided to make her exit from Sugar Moon. And I think it was partly because of the fine, you know, just not making enough money and the enormity of the impact. And so um, I, I was able to take over the business and and um, that just came with a, a an absolute, that was very lonely times, to be honest with you. Like, yeah, those are very lonely times. Yeah, and I think you raised two good points um, that you don't necessarily hear a lot of business owners talk about is a one is how much money you're making, right? Like actually how much money you're making taking home mm -hmm. versus like reinvesting in the business because you're constantly reinvesting in the, in the business, right? And two, that sometimes this journey can be lonely and there can be moments where you kind of feel like you're out on an island all by yourself. And if you don't have like friends or colleagues in your network that are also kind of going down the same path, you know, other people around you question you all the time. And then it makes you question yourself. And it's really, really important to have a supportive network of people who kind of understand what it is that you're going through and can help you through that. So when you um, were then on your own, what do you think is that helped you through that time period, like to keep going and to grow? Because look, you grew that from the <laughs> two of you to now you have 25 employees that work for you and multiple mm -hmm. locations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um. Well, sheer determination, um, that's the first thing. But I really have a deep belief in Sugar Moon. I, I I just I love what we've I love what I've created and I love this team that I work with who have all really invested in the Kool-Aid mm -hmm. <laughs> um and, and believe what they're you know, believe fundamentally in, in me and also what we are trying to achieve together. And so um, I just, I really think that the service that we're delivering, and it was nice to hear that in the in introduction um, of me, that you value the customer service that we're trying to provide, because I think ultimately that is the experience that Sugar Moon wants to always create is when you come to us, it is, a, you know, we, it is a privilege to be treating you as, as our guest. And so um, I appreciate that, Janet, because that, that's those are nice words, and that's exactly who that's exactly how all my team um, 
that's their fundamental belief and part of our core value. Yeah, but I, I think part of how you've instilled that in people is that you do call each customer a guest. They are guests when they come in. So how would you treat a guest that comes to your house, mm -hmm. right? Um, which everyone can kind of relate to, although different people treat guests differently. <laughs> but, you know, you said in some training to make sure everyone's treated consistently. And, you know, everyone there is so friendly, helpful, delightful. Um, you have all female staff, so it's an all female business. And um, you have done a lot with doing the fair living wage. Like how much work was that to get to that? Mm -hmm. Well, we, we were, there was a fairly big gap to get to the living wage. So, so back in 2019, as we were starting to build the franchise business, um, we really had to look at our investment um, into our own staff and also how franchisees their, their fundamental belief on what kind of company they would also want to build to make sure that we were all, you know, we had that, that those, those same values in, in line. And so um, we had started to do the work with the living wage um, program and funny enough in Toronto. So most estheticians are sort of paid in that 17, 18, $19 an hour range um, very much like the service industry, uh, some those those were standards, but actually in Toronto it was twenty two oh eight, and so we and they look at the living wage program actually looks at all of your offerings. So for for us, we have an RSP program, and we also have um, uh, we also have benefits, and then we have the living wage. So <clears throat> it's really hard in Toronto to make a living. To to be honest with you, because it's so expensive. Um, but I knew at that time that we had to make the shift. Um, one, when you have a happy staff, you have a happy business. And when you are able to provide for your family in a, in a much better way, you are just genuinely ha happier and feel more appreciated. And I think it sort of took out the hierarchy of, of who, like seniority. Basically, if you're working for us, everyone is fairly paid period. And so that's the kind of company that we are building and we work together. Um, and we, you know, we bonus together. We have, you know, it's, it's, it's a nice, it's an, for me, it's, I think it's a, a great place to work for any, any female, but we are an all female staff. Yes. But we do celebrate all bodies and presentations. So I want to make sure that that's clear. Yeah. And I would say like, have you seen, um, do you, see a change in your environment like do employees or staff stay with you longer as opposed to you get someone in and they kind of leave quickly or because mm -hmm. I, I would imagine like if they love what they're doing that's number one if they love what they're doing and you're also offering like benefits and the RSP program like those are a lot of added incentives that may not be offered at other places for that type of work yeah, I think I think there's a study that they say that when you, you know, if you're if women get paid more, they tend to reinvest in their community more. So I think we have that I think everyone shares that same value and I think our employees are happy. Um I definitely know 
I can definitely say that they know that we try our very best. It's a fine balance though, right, um, Janet? Because you have, you cannot increase price and increase labor costs. Um, you have to stay competitive while increasing your, your labor costs and finding unique ways in your business to lower operating costs. And in a pandemic environment, when we chose to actually do the increase, um, those like this is we're in challenging times now because, you know, the cost of everything is is here. And at the same time, the living wage has, in fact, gone up again for 2023. And so uh, we're, we're trying to find unique ways to combat the labor, the additional labor costs. But we have to work together as a group. And these are decisions that we make as a group, what we're taking, what we're cutting services, you know, what products we're going to keep, what products we're going to cut. It's, it's, there's a fine balance. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've talked about the sugaring service, but you also, um, over the years started creating your own sugar moon products as well, which is another line of revenue. Right. Mm. So how long into the business did you actually start to create your own products? Uh, I think we were in, I think the Sugar Moon Take Home Kit launched in 2012, um, the original one. And then from there, we started making like scrubs and lotions. But even that is an investment, right? So it it sounds great to say that, you know, you're creating product, but to really do it well, it, it there is an enormity of cost um, to, to that also. So um, I think because we are we have the experience now we are we are able to to lower our costs in that that aspect because we do manufacture in in Mississauga which is which is great um and then we do import um some of our skincare in from Australia but um but yeah i think it there's just a very it's a fine balance so yeah to answer your question a long long-winded way 2012 is when we we really started to to look at manufacturing our own stuff. Okay, so you've been in business for 20 years, and I'm sure over the years you've tried things that have worked, things that have not worked. And um, let's talk about, like, what do you think one of the best things is that you did for your business that you tried? But then also think about one of the worst things that you tried. And I'm more than happy to share an experience because I can tell you the worst thing I ever did with Orange Fish <laughs> was we were doing the um, America's Next Top Model show in Toronto. It was advertised that it was going to be like thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And I had met this other business owner who sold this like video technology, which was like one of a kind at, at, at the time. And you could basically have like a video photo booth and people could like pick up a product and be like, I love this product because of whatever. And then they could automatically send it out to their like Instagram or Facebook or whatever. And this was not an inexpensive mistake. <laughs> this was actually a very expensive mistake. And I thought, oh, this, this would be great for like social media marketing, blah, blah, whatever. And, you know, I'd paid the company. They came the morning of the hour before the show opened. And, you know, you've worked shows. They're hectic, right? And the technology didn't work. And instead of, like, trying to resolve it, the other business owner was in tears and was blaming the convention center for the connection. 
which I think all of these things probably should have been worked out beforehand if there were going to be any challenges. But at the end of it all, she offered to do another show with us. But because of how she um, behaved in person, I was like, no, it's okay. <laughs> because it actually added a lot of extra stress. And so that was a big mistake that I made because I was always like so innovative and I wanted to try things like right away. And so that kind of taught me like, maybe let's see how this other people implement this first sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's good to take risks, right? Um, and I think without doing that, you don't really know. And so as costly as it as it was, I mean, you now know um, what you never want to do, right? Um, and I think for, for me at Sugar Moon, like, I made 8,000 mistakes. Um, and I, I, you know, now in this, in, in this new climate, I, I'm trying to make less mistakes, but at the same time, like given my age, like learning about all of these other technologies and, you know, social media and all the stuff that I just am not like, I'm horrible at it. I realize that there's a purpose. And of course, even being a guest on your show, um, you know, these are things that I need to be doing. And so I have to kind of come out of my own comfort zone. But I think one of my major, major mistakes um, was not expanding into the U.S., quickly and to prove my concept in the United States with a corporate store. And also I, I think at this point, actually realizing my own role in the company and where I fit into it. Like I am an owner and, um, an, uh, and uh, an operator and actually I love to operate. Um, and so I love being on the floor with my staff. I love actually still being in service with my my clients. Um, but you cannot be everything. Um, you cannot be on your business, in your business, and then actually servicing the clients and be as big as you are. And so I've made some doozies, Janet, like um, like big mistakes. And I think I I needed to have like a CFO or possibly even a CEO. Um, who could take my vision because I have this grandiose vision of Sugar Moon. Um, I'm not experienced enough to to take it to that level. And so I've made a lot of a lot of costly mistakes because I just simply didn't have the experience to be able to take it to next level. And so I'm trying to I'm rethinking all of those things now and and how to make less mistakes. Let's let's put it that way. And and really thinking about bringing on somebody who can take sugar moon to the level it can be because it's a beautiful brand and it can be everywhere. Um, and we see companies like mine who are ex expanding into the U S but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful. We have all of, look at what we did with you with e-learning. I just didn't execute on that properly. Um, so we had invested all of the money on the actual strategy of that, but didn't actually finish, and execute the project. So those things get really frustrating when I make those kinds of decisions. Yeah. And that one proved to be a costly one because I wasn't ready for the pandemic. Yeah, but it's interesting because uh, it's funny because as a, you're a little bit hard on yourself in some oh. ways. <laughs> um, and, you know, we all make mistakes at different points in this journey. It's whether we learn from them or not. I love that you shared that even after 20 years of experience, you still feel 
like you need some extra expertise to help you. Um, I think that's the mistake a lot of people make is not getting some extra help when they need it. But part of it is not knowing when you need it, right? And and the other part is knowing like how much more of an investment you need to go to the U.S. Um, you know, I reached a point with Orange Fish where I knew I could, I grew it to a certain level to get to the next level. I would have had to like dump a ton of money in, get a lot of investors, be answerable to other people, which I decided I didn't want to do. And, and I think it comes to the point too of like figuring out what type of business you do want to own and operate. And do you want a business that always has to double in revenue every year or do you want a business that provides you with uh, living? Do you know what I mean? So it's like what, like people have to think about these things and make these decisions when they're going down this path. You know, somebody wise once told me that, actually asked me this question, what do you want your own life to look like? What do you, how do you want to feel when you wake up in the morning and for me, I, um, as you know, I am a single mom with the, with the two kids. And for me, my life had to be centered around my, my family. And so I could only actually expand the business based on how much capacity I had uh, for time. Because, you know, this takes a lot of time, an enormous amount of energy. And so I think what I'm most proud of is that I have raised really good um, young adults and that, you know, now that they're older, I mean, my youngest is 14 who keeps me very busy with soccer, but, um, I, I do feel like there's this new sort of opportunity for me to make decisions where my, my family is more supported because they're older. Um, and also the experience and wisdom that comes along with owning a business for 20 years, um, but for me, I think my family had to be the most, the, the biggest priority. Um, and that's a very tough balance too. how to weigh family and also this expanding business and dealing with all of these staff members um, and their needs. Uh, I mean, I'm very fortunate to have a, an HR manager uh, who who works with me now, who who takes on the majority of, 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 of the needs of, of the staff, but let's face it, everyone does has have needs and HR is fundamentally the most important thing in your business. Um, and so I'm very fortunate now that I have some great pieces in place and feel more calm and confident in what I'm doing. Yeah. And I think that that's in part, like you feel HR is most important because you care so much about the people that work for you. You know, you care that they are happy, that they do like what they're doing, that they are doing a good job and, you know, not every business owner is like that. Like, I feel like now so many more business owners are about the bottom line and just about making money. And, you know, is that really what we're put on this planet to do just to make money? I don't know. Like, I've struggled with that when I was younger. Of course, you know, you have big dreams and big goals and it's usually related to money and success. But as you age, I think those things change and your perspective changes. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for saying those nice things. I think for us and what we do in providing a service um, in the unique way that we do, we are constantly seeing people and there's that energy exchange. 
Um, and so if I don't take care of my staff, they are not taking care of the people who are coming into us. And so it it is it is definitely something that is very important. And, you know, Harvard, I read yesterday, invested $25 million into the science of mindfulness. And so um, this is super this is super interesting to me because mindfulness in all aspects of your life has to, you know, I, I just, I really do feel like we run at this pace um, all the time. And I, th- I think for my staff, work-life balance is super important and we've created, you know, we have some that are working four days a week, um, some that don't want to work four days a week, some that are working three days a week. Um, we've become much more flexible as an, as an employer, um, to make sure that they are coming in in the best versions of themselves because they have to be the best versions of themselves every single time they are treating a guest. So, I, th- yeah, I, I hope that our industry th- continues to survive. We have so much work to do in our industry um, to make it more professional, especially in Ontario versus the rest of Canada. Um, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful. Yeah. Well, I think um, you took on uh, creating Beauty United during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure like for you, was that a very eye opening experience, both from how owners, how other owners and operators are operating their businesses, but also the perspective of people working in that business, as well as the perspective of like what the government is thinking with regards to this industry? Such a loaded question. I know. Um, (laughs) I don't ask the easy ones. (laughs) uh, So let's start with, so Beauty United came to be with several other female entrepreneurs. So it was Kristen from the 10 spot, myself, um, Bruna DeCheca of of Ritual. Um, We we came together realizing right away at the start of the pandemic that we were in trouble. Um, one, because we just didn't have a, a, a voice in Ontario who could represent us. So if you think about like the College of Massage just versus aesthetics. So think about spas in general. Typically you would have like physio or massage therapists and then estheticians. Um, and so what the College of Massage did, they said to because they have a great lobbying power. They basically said to the chief medical officer of health, absolutely not. We're not closing. This is what we're going to do to safely stay open. Um, and for us, because we're governed under public health, we were a public health nightmare because public health was so busy in contact tracing at the start of the pandemic that they were like, nope, it's just, you know, in our opinion, it's better to close them. You know, they're the source of the spread, which is just hot garbage because the massage there, think of like they had to come through the same door as I own, yeah. <laughs> come through the same policy. So they were saying basically that the massage therapist could work in the same treatment room as an esthetician, perform that service and leave deemed safe. But what we were doing was not deemed safe. Like it was just absolute insanity. And so, yes, we started this lobby group called Beauty United. And I never want to be in politics because that I think might have been the most challenging, frustrating, exhausting mission ever. But um, somebody telling me that I did not have the right to earn a living and somebody dictating that my staff that I love did not have the right to earn a living 
really, I'm still like, I can, I can hear it. Like I'm still, it sends shivers down my spine um, because it makes no sense. Um, and as much as the federal government attempted to get money out quickly, I was worth more than $2,000 a month. Yeah. My staff was worth more than $2,000 a month. Like where did they just come up with this number from? Like the enormity of the loss is so crazy um, to me. Like I'm not over it yet, right? And and it's funny because everyone just wants to like put it away. And I'm still fighting now to try to figure out how they will forgive some of these like loans. Um, you know, some of my staff had to pay back additional CERB after they were closed for as long as they were because of a glitch in the system. Like it just you know, it just makes absolutely no sense. And um, I'm I'm still pretty bitter about it. You know, I, how did they just decide that some stores could be open and some could be closed? Like 212 days, we were closed. Yeah. <laughs> and then told us that we were, you know, f- for 407 more days that we could work at, an, uh, at a reduced capacity when the rest of Canada was open. In fact, BC didn't close. I think they closed maybe for four days and the U.S. was open. The science wasn't different. We just didn't have a voice to represent us. And I still think that our industry is extremely disrespected um, and there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. And I hate to say this and we probably shouldn't get into the gender discussion, but is it primarily because it's a female industry where females can be successful? I don't know. Like, and there's just not as much like respect given to it. Because of that, I like it's it's frustrating, I'm sure. And and you may be in recovery mode for a while um, about that. But what what is the big goal with Beauty United if we were to look three, five years down the road? Well, I've stepped down as chair um, and it's being run by a bunch of very smart people. Um, but I 100 percent believe that their goal and which was always the goal of Beauty United was to be able to collectively bring the industry together, whether that's any any form of um, any industry where you're touching the largest organ of the body, which is the skin. So tattoo to aesthetics, uh, microblading, you know, tanning, all hair, all under one umbrella to be able to help. It's a huge, it's a billion dollar industry that this government in Ontario pays absolutely no attention to. Um, and to be able to license it properly, because if you can imagine in Ontario, which is crazy to so many people around the world, that you can just come in here, open up an aesthetic studio and not have any training. And clients would never know whether or not you know what you're doing on the skin. I can proudly say that we have all estheticians that are working for us and we have our own academy where we bring people through after they've been trained in school to ensure that they know and understand um, everything um, that there is to know for the services that we offer. But I think Beauty United's mission overall is to be able to standardize the industry, make it more legitimate, um, put licensing in place, hold people accountable to those licenses, have them have cards so that as a guest coming in, you know, you know that they know what they're doing so that you don't have places like the place in, in Whippy have a staff infection in the first week that they're open, right? Like that stuff should never happen. You know, like 
you can't just be hiring massage therapists who are not registered, who perform massage on the body um, for the sake of massage and charge $120 and they don't actually know and understand, you know, all of like, it just riles me up, Janet. Like it, <laughs> it just, I wish Monty McNaughton, if you listen to this, sir, that you would pay closer attention to what we want to be doing and, and to continue to work with Beauty United on their mission. Yeah. And, you know, I love how passionate you are because it's not just about um, resolving challenges for your own business, but it's resolving challenges for the industry as a whole, because that is where it has to go, you know, to get to the next level. Well, it doesn't really make me want to expand in Ontario, Mm -hmm. right? Like I think about the U.S. and how they manage this industry. You know, everyone has to have cards, um, and I'm sure it has its own challenges, and I, I'll find that all along the way. But um, I don't love that a salon can just open up next to me who have, you know, that are just investors basically and hiring anyone who can who can work there. I think the public needs to be more informed than they are, right? So that was the real goal of Beauty United was to ensure that the public knew that we were safe because for two years – the public knew we were closed. So for some reason, we were the source of the spread. You right. know? So that's just not how that goes. It was literally because we did not have the representation that we needed to fighting for us. So it's funny you talk about the women's industry. I was I was featured. Stephanie Nolan did a story called Women's Work Undone. And uh, and she really talked about that sorry she really talked about that um in her article about how women were impacted during the pandemic um you know from women having to exit their jobs um to be able to take home take care of the children being at home online learning um and you know for us this female-led industry which is a known fact um we were decimated uh during the the pandemic and I think about my own experience at that time, you know, being a single mom, having the stores closed. I lost two of five locations in COVID. Um, and then also having to manage my kids. I, I'm i not sure how I got through that period. It, it seems so long ago, thank God. Um, but I do think women were very, very impacted. I think everybody was impacted, but... I, I'm not sure. It would be interesting to see the follow-up of that story, you know, where women are today now that kids are back at work. Are they entering back into the workforce? Because I think for us, you know, we lost 30% of the industry in the first year, 30%. Like those are not small numbers, right? These are, And we had a lot of an employee exit. Like, you know, people went to go work at Amazon and, you know, it was just, it was all crazy. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously, I think we're both very impassioned about this um, issue, especially when it comes to gender, empowering women, wanting women to get ahead in whatever means and ways that they can. Um, But I'm going to shift the conversation a little bit because we're almost out of time. I can't believe it. I know you said it was going to go quick. Yeah, it totally (laughs) goes so fast all the time. So I have a question that I always ask at the end of the podcast and I stole it from Tim Ferriss, because I love it so much. Why mess with perfection? And the question is this. If you could have a billboard 
downtown Toronto, like say in Dundas Square, one of those great big billboards, and it could have any message on it. What message would you want on the billboard? What would it say? And it can be business related. It can be personal. It can be whatever you want. I've had so many answers to this in so many different ways. So what's your message? What is the message you'd like to send? I think that there's opportunity in every day. And you just need to you just need to go out and find out what your opportunity is today. That would be what my my billboard would say. I yeah. I really I do feel like there's opportunity in every day. Um and that is kind of how I'm taking it um right now is what are my opportunities every day and that's kind of how I'm getting through every day. Is that there are opportunities to to do things better. Um there's opportunity for for new business, there's opportunity to meet new friends. There's today there's an opportunity to be here with you so that's what my billboard would say yeah i love that and Thank and you. i think i think people forget to look for opportunities and sometimes opportunities just fly by us they go by us and they're like oh i didn't act on that opportunity and you're sneaky <laughs> and I, I asked you what we were talking about you didn't tell me that one i know i like <laughs> it on the spot it's got to be spontaneous <laughs> Sneaky. It's a great answer. Um, But Paula, if people would like to find you or follow you, where is the best place online to go? So um, you can visit us at sugarmoonsalon.com. And for those of you interested in the work of Beauty United, so it's beautyunited.ca. And again, there's super smart people running that organization and who who are as passionate as I am about making change. And uh, if you wanted to come and visit us at any of our locations, we have two locations in Toronto, one at Danforth and Chester and um, Jane's in the High Park area. And then we have a little tiny shop in Burlington. So, and if you're interested in opening a Sugar Moon, please call me. (laughs) I will help you. I love, I love, uh, love supporting entrepreneurs. And um, is it best for people to like connect with you on LinkedIn or Instagram or email? What's the best for you? Okay, so I'm not great at Instagram, I have to be honest. So LinkedIn would be great. Or of course, my email, Paola, P-A-O-L-A at SugarMoonSalon.com. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I've really, you know, I love any time we get together and we get to chat. Sometimes it's ours. Um, mostly it's ours. Yeah, <laughs> it's mostly ours for sure. But thank you so much for doing this today and um, good luck with everything this year. Thank you, Janet. And thanks for all your help with uh, with Sugar Moon, our brand, our e-learning strategy, everything that you do for, for us. And it was a pleasure to be uh, a guest on your show today. 